Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Welcome to Explain to Shane. Here at AEI, my colleague Brent Orell and I recently hosted Rob Reich, along with one of his co-authors, Jeremy Weinstein, for a discussion on their recent book, System Error, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. We discussed America's relationship with technology and the challenges before us on managing artificial intelligence in the workforce and its influence in society. In today's podcast, Rob Risch joins me again to have a more in-depth discussion on the intense interest on AI and governance. Rob is a professor of political science at Stanford University. His research focuses on the intersection of philosophy, politics, and education and the effects AI has on these areas of our society. Rob is also the faculty co-director of Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society and the faculty director of the McCoy Center for Ethics in Society. He is also the associate director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. In today's episode, we covered his relationship to technology, the pluses and minuses of implementing the precautionary principle, and the relationship between intelligence and prediction. Join us as we discuss America's new awareness of artificial intelligence. Hi, Rob. Welcome to uh, being a guest on Explain to Shane. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. It's really great to be here. It was great to meet you, too. Thank you for coming to back to Washington to do the event on your book, System Error. It was a great read. I really enjoyed it. I really liked being in Washington and hanging out with you and the folks at AEI. It was also super stimulating. Um, well, you're welcome anytime. We can always get you a little guest spot. You can come over and, and hang out with the kids. <laughs> um, so explain to us your relationship with technology and uh, governance and AI ethics that you recover in this book. You've got a fascinating area that you've been working in for quite some time. Yeah, well, I'm not a technologist by training. I'm a philosopher, and I've been at Stanford now 25 years. And so the way I got into this was that uh, I kind of observed from my perch in the humanities and social sciences the mass migration of undergraduate students from majoring in the humanities and social sciences at Stanford and then um, majoring over on the engineering quad in the computer science in particular. And of course, this coincided with, the, with the, the rise of Silicon Valley as an economic force in the entire world and the transformation of our personal, our, our economic, our, our civic lives by so many digital tools and platforms, beginning with the internet in the 1990s, then of course the, the web 2.0 as they call it, the social media wave, and now in accelerated fashion, um, this um, massive explosion of interest in artificial intelligence and in particular the generative AI since the release of ChatGPT uh, late last year. So instead of just passively observing this and commenting as I might as a philosopher, um, since I'm at uh, ground zero in certain respects here in Silicon Valley and on Stanford campus where so many of these inventions were, uh, were disseminated or even, even invented in certain respects um, from the technology side, I started collaborating with a whole bunch of folks over in the engineering school and trying to um, bring to bear a humanistic and social scientific or policy frame on not just the evaluation of AI once it's been designed and deployed, but rather in the very design of it in the beginning, as it were, philosophers in the lab with the computer scientists in, in, in thinking up the frontier of AI. So what was the first thing that, I mean, it's, it's an interesting crossover, we're a little 
we're used to it now is, um, you know, people thinking about the social elements, especially with all the um, social networking stuff that's, you know, come out in the last 10 years or plus. Uh, so what was your first impression of like, how, how do I, how do I, how do I work with these people? How does this, how's this all, how can I be helpful to this? Well, I found that the, the, the technologists I encountered, um, maybe for totally understandable reasons are, are, um, advocates or exponents of the transformative potential of these tools and platforms, um, sometimes bleeding into, um, you know, unabashed boosterism or, you know, the, the, that these are, these are tools and technologies that are um, almost all upside for humanity. And, you know, it doesn't have to, we don't have to go back that far in time. It's really less than 10 years ago, even with the release of the, some of the social media tools like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, that people felt that these were going to be liberatory for the world and unlock human creativity. And that um, um, if you simply allowed the dissemination of these incredible information technology platforms, it would allow people um, to expand freedom and to increase their, their own knowledge. And there was basically no downside. And I think in 2015, 2016, beginning in particular with, uh, with the uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election, um, people began to become much more attuned to some of the downsides, the, the misinformation and disinformation that goes viral, the, the ways in which automation in the workplace um, displaces or transforms human labor, uh, the ways in which many of the internet companies are um, abusing, in certain respects, our privacy by hoovering up all this data. And then, of course, we've learned about algorithmic bias in a variety of ways. And the frame that, that um, I bring to this in, in the book and how I think about this as an ordinary matter, especially thinking for an AEI audience um, there in, in, in DC and beyond, is, is that we don't need to invent from whole cloth new frameworks to, to understand um, how it is that the digital revolution is working. We can use some fairly old frameworks from, that come from the social sciences and from philosophy, in particular the language um, from e economics of externalities. And so my own um, view, informed partly by history and then partly by thinking in particular about social media, the internet, and then these AI um, um, companies, is that uh, these tools and technologies have extraordinary upside benefits, uh, positive, positive force for humanity and, and society, and also a bunch of negative externalities. And those you could catalog as what I said before, the transformation of the human labor, um, the ways in which uh, misinformation, disinformation gets dumped at the doorstep of our, of our civic institutions, even while it's quite profitable for the, for the social media companies to propagate it. And so um, using that language of externality, uh, I think we can then bring to bear the familiar variety of tools that are within the government's easy reach or, for that matter, civil society in order to try to internalize them. And, and that's, to a certain extent, the large, largest and most important message of the book. Um, we are not um, boomers or doomers, as, as the lingo goes these days. Um, we neither think it's all upside nor all downside. We want a fairly ordinary conversation about the moment we're in, in terms of bringing to bear pretty off-the-shelf tools of government and civil society to ensure that we get the great benefits that, that the digital revolution promises and, and to avoid some of the now obvious harms. So governance is an area that you focus on, and I've that's done a lot of governance in, on just internet governance. How the, but that's a lot of working with standards bodies and you know RFPs and things that yeah. are a little easier because they're on the tech side of things. 
One of the things that I think that AI has really drawn out is, um, and, and disinformation and misinformation are a perfect example of people. People love falling for this stuff, right? You know, they mm-hmm. the, one of the reasons why it's so easy to fool them is they want to believe a lot of it. So now, when you come into governance, you've got kind of new challenges, which is that human element. It isn't just a hard edged tech problem. It you know, like watermarking or, or something like that. You've got to be like, well, where is this very faint line you know on where the information flow becomes not not helpful to harmful to inaccurate um and and i was having a conversation today with somebody who said that people were very surprised it it wasn't such a bright line in the very beginning they're like well it's real bright to me and you're like yeah not Mm -hmm. not always that case what do you recommend in that space yeah, I think you're right, and especially when it comes to issues of, of free speech and 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 how it is that we think about the the very broad permissions that we we rightly celebrate for people to express themselves. And with the internet now, there are so many different mechanisms for disseminating voice and to um, um, gaining for you know, ordinary people um, an an audience. And leaving aside just the First Amendment as a kind of um, constitutional uh, barrier for government uh, actually defining what counts as permissible and impermissible speech, even if that weren't the case, as of course it doesn't exist in quite the same way in the U.S. and in other in other democracies, there still would be a really strong case for putting a heavy thumb on the scale of very robust protections for freedom of expression. So as you say, um, there's no easy bright line to draw about where it is that um, we ought to, uh, you know, uh, sort of ban or delete speech online, and then where it is we should champion and, and celebrate it. I think it's appropriately something that we have a pluralistic or a kind of marketplace of different kinds of approaches, and then different users can opt in and opt out of their preferred communities in certain ways. Now, of course, there are some limits, and I think it is important to note that um, the internet and social media is different in certain ways than, say, the telephone or the radio or the television. So I'm not trying to say it's just a complete continuum um, there. But um, um, as someone who attaches extraordinary importance to freedom of expression, uh, I I want to um, give the widest possible latitude to to people to say and do what they want um, online and in other forums, up to including in disseminating misinformation and disinformation. um, Although here's, I think, the important point from my point of view. the algorithms that um, surface um, to every user online, different pieces of content, those don't need to treat misinformation and disinformation in the same way they might other fairly ordinary forms of speech, um, the kinds of private communications or you know, like cat videos type of thing. Um, let that be uh, a bunch of stuff that happens online. And the algorithmic curation or the algorithmic moderation of speech is where we can see um, some of the interventions that come chiefly from the companies, but then guided also by civil society. So one area I think you and I have a little bit of a difference of opinion, but I'm always willing to be persuaded is I believe that the number one thing that Europe is exporting right now is a bunch of regulation, which is mm-hmm. not healthy for American companies. And that's not where I think we differ. I think it's that you are a little more interested in the precautionary principle being adopted here in the right. United States, which is thinking a lot think forward thinking through the regulation where I think we need to have consumer harm before we start putting in place. So tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, here's one of the big differences between our current AI moment and what we went through with the early days of the Internet and then the early days of Web 2.0 and the social web. 
Um, as I said before, in those early days of the internet and, and social media, there was extraordinary enthusiasm for the, for the unlimited potential and upside that these technologies would bring. And then we saw some of the negative externalities emerge. Um, in this particular moment, all of that has been wrapped up into a very quick cycle. There, there hasn't been anybody from day one of ChatGPT who thought this is only upside. We've always been aware of some of the downside. And the downside is even greater, according to some of the um, skeptics or, for that matter, some of the chief scientists within the companies that are propagating um, the, these extraordinary technologies, like the people at OpenAI, like the people at Anthropic, Google, Microsoft. So, you know, you hear about the worries about existential risks to humanity as a result of runaway or malevolent AI in various ways, or the ways in which extremely powerful frontier AI models, um, when they fall into the hands of adversaries, could be used to generate um, biopathogens for, 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 you know, terrorist purposes or warfare. Uh, in in this case, since we're not talking about cat videos anymore, we're talking about something far more serious, I think um, something that approaches uh, a precautionary principle is an important part of the conversation, not because we should just slow things down and take stock of where we are. Um, I'm no fan of the, 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 the letter that was signed a bunch of months ago by 20,000, 30,000 people saying we should take a six-month pause on developing these frontier models. Um, um, by contrast, I simply think that we ought to find some ways to put in some safety and guardrails, both in formal policy uh, and law, as well as in coordinating the companies around industry-wide standards so that there's a much wider set of shared norms about the appropriate development and deployment of these powerful tools. So part of the challenge without somebody who spent a lot of time in regulation is the, the people that are already in the regulated body or feel they're getting getting very close to that are usually the first ones to raise their hand and volunteer That's because right. they're like great i have a lot of people i pay to do this let's get my lawyers and my people in the room and we'll do it by my rules which is i feel like what we're seeing right now with rose garden ceremonies and yep. all kinds of fun stuff but then it's always and this is always it can be 10 percent, 15 percent outliers that are always ruining it for everyone else because they're like hell no and yep. i'm going to go by the letter of the law and screw you guys you know yep. and so it's it's interesting to see who's running to the regulatory light because they want to get ahead of it from their lawyer's perspective, yeah. especially in this case, I'm going to call out Microsoft because they, they've been to that party before. It's expensive. Um, and so this is like pennies on the dollar for them. But I worry about what we, you know, the, 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 it's going to be, the, you know, the devil or in the details on this one, right? In, exactly. In but we go on. It, I mean, it, I, I want I want emphatically to agree with you, but but also to say you, the dynamic you just identified does not apply to our current moment. So he, here's why. Okay. Um, first, to agree with you, um, when it is that we get in place a bunch of regulatory pressures or standards, um, um, you're exactly right that the incumbent industry players typically are the main beneficiaries. It creates a kind of regulatory moat around some of what they do and um, stifles or at least limits innovation, especially from the small, the small players. Um, however, in this current moment, um, because of the architecture of these frontier AI models, these large language models, which require extraordinarily large investments in compute and in data collection, we're really only talking about at most 10 companies, or I mean, like it's certainly not more than 20, and it might even be single digits that are on the frontier. And it, um, some of those companies, like OpenAI and Anthropic, are relatively small. Anthropic, to the best of my knowledge, for example, doesn't have more than 100 employees yet. Others, um, like Microsoft or Google or Meta, of course, much larger. 
But um, the, the circumstances we confront uh, are not those of stifling the marketplace. The, the capital infrastructure costs are going to be a huge barrier there. And that's not something either industry or government is going to solve, so to speak, unless it turns out that the cost of compute be, um, begins to come down, which, of course, is a possibility, and then circumstances will change. But at the moment, what you described as a, as a general dynamic doesn't apply in the, in the current situation. So you think we can come up with some guidance that most people, the responsible ones are going to be in there and they're going to help kind of, you know, moderate that forward. And hopefully as the newcomers come on, they're going to, it'll already be, it'll be formed. And so they'll say like, well, we'll stay in this space unless they do something really rogue and crazy and kill. Correct. And for some of the commercial applications of generative AI, you won't need these frontier models that have huge capital infrastructure costs. You can use some open source models, which are already easily available online. And some of those can be out side of the scope of, of the regulatory kinds of, um, you know, uh, precautionary uh, direction that, that, that I have in mind. So I think we get the benefit of commercial innovation on, on the lesser um, uh, models, the ones that aren't as, uh, as capital or compute intensive as the ones on the frontier. And then we, we steer the frontier ones um, um, happily since there's a small number of companies with some, with some genuine coordination. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But yeah, you know, just like a little, a little bit of cynicism from spending years in cybersecurity, where you know yeah. all the big comp- IBM was right in the front, just can't you know wait to get how tell everybody how to do their work. Yep, <laughs> didn't always work out. Um, so Mark Andreessen has been on a podcast tour. I'll call it recently. Um, the boys at AI love Lex Friedman. I'm a big Ben Thompson fan, so mm-hmm. I loved his podcast for that. But he's he's done a good job of saying let's look at this AI as an optimistic moment and get out of like you mentioned the doomers and the gloomers on that. Um, and, you know, the idea that we would hopefully this is our moment to become smarter as a society, really kind of put our capabilities on steroids. I was a huge fan of, you know, several books that have said, like, this is just our, our, our next leap. This is our Gutenberg Bible moment. Right. Yep. You know, do you you follow on that? You think there's there's something to that? I appreciate the fact that he's positioning himself as an evangelist for all of the potential upside. Because as uh, as I said just before and agree with him about, um, if we handle this current moment well, we're going to stand to gain um, from a from humanity's point of view, from an economic point of view, from an individual human being creativity point of view, a huge amount. Um, but unlike Mark Andreessen, who's you know that the manifesto that then launched him on the the, the podcast tour called AI will save the world. Um, if you read the manifesto, it says things um, in classic you know, manifesto style about how in education, for example, every student will have an AI tutor and that AI tutor will express infinite empathy and infinite love for all people. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a lovely vision, but it, it denies the existence of trade-offs or it denies the existence of the possibility of negative externalities of what I described before. And that just seems to me flat out wrong. So uh, I'm no doomer or gloomer, but neither am I um, a utopian about the current AI moment being, you know, the salvation of humanity, as, as he titled his manifesto. You think it's somewhere in the middle? We'll yes, good things like every other, things, like right? every yeah. other technological <laughs> moment of innovation. Um, um, nothing is 100% upside. Uh, we, we can't ever anticipate all the various second, third order effects of, of these uh, radical disruptions in our lives. 
And so there's always adaptation and trying to shape things for human benefit um, in order to avoid the, the possible negative consequences. It's like this is just a garden variety approach to thinking historically. It's again, going back to cyber thinking about how many times you're like, just go to the dark hat guys first. Just go there first. They're, they're going to figure it out. They're going to, mm-hmm. whatever's going to make them a jillion dollars in their jammies. They don't even, yes. all they have to do is remember the Domino's number and they'll survive, you know, <laughs> except for they'll have more money and they'll finally get caught buying a Lamborghini. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, and move to Thailand. Um, they, I, I kind of want to see, like, we keep hearing about all these doom scenarios. I'm like, can't we just sandbox that and like kind of work it out so we can be like, okay, so we see what you, you little clowns are going to do with it. Can we, then we can figure out how to like, maybe, well, no, that won't work probably. Right. Not. That'll, right. <laughs> right. So um, again, another quote here, Sam Alton once said that demonstration of GPT was asked about, uh, you know, what it means to be human and the intelligence is a lot closer to prediction than he once thought. And I have to say, I feel that way, but about the whole thing. I mean, I've been on this role for a while and I'm like, if the, if the algorithm knows what I want better and faster than I, it's probably right. And I usually let it have what it wants. I'm a little mm-hmm. permissive on that, you know, mm-hmm. but I also tell it everything it needs to know. So, do you think there's something to that or do, is it just that the algorithms have been lucky to this point? Eventually, they're going to turn us on a bad road down a dark path. Uh, no, I, I mean I, I, I share a lot of the view of Altman that that the the pattern detection that's at the heart of these AI deep learning models um, is turning out to be uh, um, far more intelligent in some conventional senses. And of course, the architecture of AI these days is patterned in certain respects after the brain's architecture. So maybe we shouldn't be too surprised that using a similar architecture, we get similar emergent forms of intelligence. However, I will say um, the following, which is um, one of the things that I think is so important um, as an observation about humanity is that um, however we wish to define human intelligence, it comes in pluralistic forms. And, you know, whether it's emotional intelligence and um, various other forms of abstract or conceptual intelligence, artistic intelligence, if you prefer that language, or if you just want to talk about the massively different orientations of human civilizations and cultures over the course of time, that's fine too. Um, one of the things that I think we have to worry about of AI is that we're going to get a kind of algorithmic or AI monoculture. Um, we want also to have pluralistic AIs that are optimizing for different kinds of intelligence. And if we narrow in on what it is that machine intelligence does so well without attending to the variety of other ways that humans form meaning in the world, take action in the world, reason in the world, I think we're, we, we might have some tensions there. But it's very early days yet, so I, I don't want to express any skepticism about that. Um, I, I'd just be concerned that we want... Just as we have plural versions of human intelligence, so too should we have plural versions of machine intelligence. So where do you think we're going to see the biggest pickup on AI? I'm thinking about the labor market. My colleague Brent Earl is very excited about yep. this, um, as I'm, I'm, I'm glad he is. But I think you know, we've all been living around it for a long time. We just haven't been calling it AI. Now it's, you know. That's right. It's everybody's it's just discovering that they've been talking to a machine for a long time. They just didn't realize that. But that's right. So where, where, where do you think we're going to see net positives in the first go round? So here I'll give you a short term prediction, which is uh, uh, that um, even though everyone has played with chat GPT or some of these language models and so has some very rough understanding about the kinds of things that they are and what it means to prompt them. When I give talks over the past six, six months, I typically start by asking, how many of you have, have introduced ChatGPT or something like it into your daily workflow and you use it on a regular basis in some form or fashion? And the answer is still basically nobody. And I encourage people 
um, just try out in various different forms the prompting for various you know workflow um, um, things that are a daily part of your 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 life. And um, having done a bit of that myself, I think we're going to see a huge productivity upswing in the course of the next year as people decide to try to experiment this uh, with, with these tools, not just as a one-off, let me check out what everyone's talking about with ChatGPT, but rather deploy them. Applications, of course, are being built on top of them. And so I think, we're, I think for people, especially where it involves some, you know, um, uh, s- symbolic analytical work, um, writers, creators, uh, people who, who traffic in, in ideas, um, um, the, the productivity gains of these tools are going to be really considerable. So people are going to figure out how to blend their life in with the machine somehow. Yeah. I mean, maybe the simple analogy to think about, even though I disagree with this in the classroom, it'd be like, think about um, the, the gains that came from using, you know, uh, Microsoft Office and, and Word and, and Excel and other kinds of, of things that became a ubiquitous far, uh, part of so many people's work lives. Um, those will be the kinds of advances, if not greater, we see from the, the language models. And I'll just flag, you know, where, where I'm concerned about this is um, in, in educational settings, because, I mean, Shane, if you or I were to use ChatGPT for any of our, any of our, our work, we'd get a whole bunch of things out. We, we've developed our own capacity to judge and to exercise kind of um, um, an evaluative standpoint about, well, is this output useful for us? What can we incorporate? What should we reject? And um, we'll make good use of these tools. If a high schooler were to do that, um, they haven't quite formed the capacity to judge those things yet. And there'll be such a sore temptation for this to be a replacement for their, for their own independent exercise of analytical um, um, evaluation and judgment um, that in educational settings, I think we have to take a pretty different approach. But for people who are seasoned professionals, it will be a huge productivity benefit. I talked to a law professor here in D.C., and I said, how are you going to manage this early on? He said, oral arguments. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. just going to go to oral arguments. I'm not going to have them do a lot of like hand in writing anymore. Exactly. So that's one place to do it. I do worry, and I think you're spot on. When I started playing with it, I thought this is great, but it's also like a lot of I'm just sanity checking or putting my things into bullet points. And um, where I think about my nieces, you know, and right, they're they're in college. They, you want to make sure they did the work, right? Yep, you know? of course. And not doing the work and not having that foundation is a very big concern. I'm not sure how you val- how you make sure there's a validation point in that. So exactly. I wish, I wish you professor times a lot of luck on that one. <laughs> I know. But I imagine you're getting a lot better work coming in. Think about some of the stuff I wrote. God, the day. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I'm saying for me, and and yeah, that I think that um, the innovation that will take place within education, um, I think, is especially exciting. The stuff Sal Khan is doing already with what he calls Conmigo, the opportunity for these language models to to um, basically be uh, synthetic students. By which I mean, imagine in the future, training people to become teachers doesn't involve, um, um, you know basically deploying a bunch of inexperienced teachers in actual classrooms with students. But you have an early phase of interacting as a, as a teacher with, with language agents in, a, in an artificial environment, each of whom is impersonating a different kind of student with different types of learning, learning orientations or abilities. Um, I think there's just a, a, a huge number of really interesting innovations that are, that are near to hand now in education. That's awesome. So what is on the horizon for you? Finish this book. Do you have another book coming out? What are you doing? 
yeah, I've, I've just started um, a leave from Stanford. So after five or six years of, of working on these these projects, teaching a whole bunch and writing, um, I'm going to try to get involved in some form or fashion with AI policy and, and governance because the window is, is happening right now. I had the, the great honor uh, of meeting President Biden um, about five, six weeks ago um, as he's been having a bunch of conversations with people on the frontier of, of AI policy and, and governance. Um, we're talking uh, um, um, in, in summer of 2023 when um, the White House just released um, news of uh, some voluntary commitments from from some of the, um, the main companies. There's probably going to be an executive order that will follow sometime downstream, maybe a legislative window opening. So um, it's a it's a it's a interesting moment and, and I don't want to miss it. So I'm going to get involved in some fashion. Oh, I look forward to seeing more of you. That's that's the hope. You might not. I will probably be spending more time in D.C. That's that, we, we need more of you. I'd be I'd be happy to see you around. That That's fantastic. Well, that's that's very exciting news. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Great, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. It's a pleasure, Shane. Really great to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.